Hello, everyone. I am Melinda Brianna Epler, founder and CEO of Change Catalyst and author of How to Be an Ally. I'm your host of Leading with Empathy and Allyship. Welcome. Allyship is about learning, showing empathy, and taking action. That process often includes learning, unlearning, and relearning, then building empathy for people with different experiences, and above all, taking consistent action. So each week, we'll learn from somebody new. Please be open to new ways of thinking and understanding. You can learn more about my work and sign up to join us for a live recording at ally.cc. Let's get started. Welcome. Here today, we are discussing creating a culture of belonging for Latinx colleagues. Coming up shortly is National Latinx and Hispanic Heritage Month. Of course, it's important to work on this year round. And we have two incredible guests here today. So we have Micah Heal, founder and organizer of the SF International Women Entrepreneurs Forum and also co-founder of Heroica. She's a dear friend. We've uh, spoken on stages around the world together. And then a new friend, Gabriela Chavez-Lopez, executive director of Latina Coalition of Silicon Valley. So welcome to you both. Thank you. Hi, Melinda. Thank you. And thank you to First Tech Federal Credit Union, our sponsor for this episode and the next one as well, the live event and podcast. Really appreciate you all. Awesome. So let's start with you both. And if you could share a bit about your story, where you grew up and how you came to do the work that you do. Hello, everyone. As you can imagine, with this accent, I was born and raised uh, in a foreign country. I was born and raised in the Canary Islands, Spain, in front of the Western Sahara coast. And um, I obviously I am an immigrant. I also belong to the LGBTQ plus community. And I'm also Latinx. And what I want to share with all of you is that a few years ago, we started the San Francisco International Women Entrepreneurs Forum as a need to get all the organizations in the Bay Area to share resources, especially for women entrepreneurs. And because of this initiative, we decided to start also a digital platform called Heroica that actually connects women-led businesses with global networks and uh, global talent to make their projects and businesses more sustainable. Uh, we discovered that only 62.0% of women are able to pass the mark of the three years and a half with their businesses in operations. And definitely we want to change that. I'm also the organizer of the Woman Impact Summit. And the Woman Impact Summit right now is the fastest growing conference for women-led businesses from underrepresented communities around the world. My inspiration to do all of this? Well, women like Melinda, like Gabriela, like the women that I have met in Africa, the women that I have met in Asia, the women that I meet here every day. We still need to do so many different things. And as Latinx, and especially in the tech sector, you have seen the stats. I'm not coming here to talk about the stats today, but I'm coming here to see how we can find uh, different ways to support each other. And I would love to collaborate with uh, all of you. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Micah. So I echo uh, Micah's statements. Thank you, Melinda and Micah, for connecting us. Um, really happy to be here to discuss um, this very important topic, especially around our special month that we get uh, throughout the year. And I'm actually 12th generation New Mexican. So my family was here uh, when it was Mexico. And uh, technically, the border crossed us. I have indigenous roots as well as Spanish influence, as well as Mexican influence. So definitely a melting pot of culture 
cultures, but, you know, I think my connection and my identity really is centered around where I grew up, which is in California's Central Valley, which is heavily Mexican. And people from all over different parts of Mexico come to the Central Valley in California to uh, farm crops. It's a very agriculturally rich area. That's really the driving industry there. And so my work is really grounded in this idea of what I learned to be growing up the farm worker movement. And I think understanding that people with perceived not so much power when collectively coming together and there being this catalyst to really drive them towards a shared vision that they can change their um, situation, that they can better their uh, human condition and that the power is in their hands. And so that's really the, the approach that I take with my work today. I get to lead an organization called Latina Coalition of Silicon Valley, which is a cross-sector, multi-generational, multi-ethnic group of women coming together uh, to really advance and strengthen the power of Latinas. We do that in a variety of ways. We really let the women tell us what their goals and aspirations are, and we help to open the doors of you know networks, of opportunities, and we're really in the business of Latina leadership development because our theory of change is that when we get women into these positions of power and influence, especially with the lens of being Latina, that they can really change these systems from the inside out. They're bringing a whole new lens into these spaces. And so being in Silicon Valley, I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to lead and for us to work collectively together with our allies in order to advance communities. Because we truly believe when we uplift Latinas, when we uplift Black women, when we uplift women, that all communities uh, rise up together. And so that's our work. We're into workforce, we're into leadership trainings, we're into financial literacy, anything that really helps us close the economic and political gaps that we see in existence currently uh, and really increase representation in these leadership and decision-making seats. So very much happy to be here. And um, I hope you can see the thread that has really connected me from, from childhood, from my heritage into this work that I'm moving forward. I really do consider myself only an instrument and using all my gifts and talents to be able to connect women to opportunities for themselves and their families. Fantastic. Thank you. Both of you kind of touched on identity and and I want to talk a little bit about that in, in a deeper way because I know there's a debate across the community and kind of globally around the terms, the terminology, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latine, Hispanic, and so on. So I want to ask you both if you could shed a little bit of light on that and talk about how you identify and um, maybe a bit about the, the global conversation there. I'm a very atypical Latina. And I remember that I said this when we were talking and later we were trying to figure out, I, I know that Gabriela was saying, but what is to be a Latina, Latinx, Hispanic at this point? I, I, I will consider myself a Latina, definitely, but uh, I would bring a component that is extremely important and Melinda has always mentioned it since I've met her and it's about intersectionality. Um, I have uh, blood from three continents, so you can imagine that's uh, a mix. And uh, of course, being born in the Canary Islands, but at the same time having blood from Europe, also from Latin America and also from Africa, that makes it extremely challenging sometimes to find a way of saying, where do I belong? And actually how you are perceived and how people are going to be treating you. Sometimes I'm not, uh, and I don't know how to say this in a very politically correct way, but uh, uh, maybe in certain circles, I'm not white enough. In other circles, 
I'm not Latin enough. Or maybe in other circles, obviously, I'm, I'm not going to be African enough. I, I mean, my roots are from Northern Africa. So um, that also makes you cultivate a way and a different approach to the challenges that you face every day. And the same way, communities around the world are facing the same challenges. So that's probably what I'm bringing here, um, Melinda, that intersectionality that we cannot put us every day in the same pot or under mm -hmm. the same flag. I don't know what you think, Gabriela. Yeah, no, I think intersectionality is definitely something that when working with a group of women who identify as maybe one thing, you realize that even within that group, there's a lot of different intersections, whether it be Afro-Latina, Asian-Latina, White-Latina, Mexi-Latina. I mean, there's just so many different uh, things. And so when people ask, you know, isn't it kind of very singular, your focus? I'm like, there's so many, there's so much diversity even within our own community. And I think that with the, with the terminology, I see it, I talked a little bit about movements. I think it's really the young people that are driving the evolution of these terms to reflect their pushback on the status quo. Mm -hmm. And I see Chicana and Chicano being a part of a movement in the 60s and the 70s that these young people just really embraced at the time. Now they're my parents' age, right? And they're like, what's this Latinx thing? I'm like, do you not remember Chicano and Chicana? Like mm -hmm. you, you all push that term as well. And now Latinx is something that millennials and Gen X and Gen Z are really saying that this is our movement. This is our time, right? To really push on the status quo because in many ways, the baby boomers have become a little bit seen as the status quo, even in our own communities. And I think so. I really do embrace these new movements because it's going to take the energy and it's going to take the young people to question the way that things have been and to really push on what could be. Right. And so I embrace Latinx. I embrace Latina. I love identifying as a woman. I, I think that there's a, a unique experience and an oppression that comes with being Latina versus Latino or even Latinx. And so, no, I think it's something that, you know, I, I do inquire. I do ask if somebody, even within my own community, I don't make assumptions. And I think that just asking the person is always such a great thing for me. Even when people ask me, um, I take it as really a compliment and a sign of deep respect when somebody is doing that deep listening on the other side to say, what do you identify with and, and why? And I'd love to learn more. Um, I think that's always a great place to start, but I really think it's tied to movements in our community and it has a sense of great pride that I feel and energy around it. So either way, I think it also can also be very distracting to be quite honest as well, when that really this, I feel like surface level conversation about really the things that we aren't talking about a little bit deeper than just an idea, like a name, because I don't want to spend all of Hispanic Heritage Month or Latinx Heritage Month talking about the terms. I would rather talk about the issues and the real meat of the problems and the systemic challenges that are holding us all back from advancing in our community. What an excellent segue into that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. And I do think that Latinx versus Latine, in general, though either one of those terms is around um, being more inclusive, people who are gender nonconforming, non-binary, and so on. Moving on to the deeper stuff of what are those experiences of exclusion and microaggressions, biases, and other forms of exclusion that that Latinx people um, experience in the workplace. Do you want to start, Gabriela, since you kind of seeded that conversation? 
Sure. Yes. I think one of the things that I know that I experience quite a bit in confronting when I'm talking about our community and when I'm speaking about the experiences of Latinas is that there's already a perceived bias, right, about the type of jobs that we do and what we're capable of and how we um, are sexualized truly in the media. And so I think there's already a lot of assumptions going into when I'm speaking about this and mostly women have been comfortable enough to tell me what those perceived biases are. And they're hurtful, to be quite honest, because it's not that we look down at all on our community and their work and what they've accomplished in this country. But just like we're not a monolith in the sense, like we have professionals, uh, we have people that are of high net worth, we have everything in between. And so I think for me, I feel a lot of white supremacy, um, even though we present white in many cases from a distance or from just visually, we can present white, we can present a lot of things. And so I think that something like white supremacy, as well as patriarchy, is something that at those intersections are very challenging to both our oppressive intersections of being a woman and being a woman of color, having a Latina surname, um, having an accent. I know I don't have an accent, but I've heard that expressed by a lot of the women that they feel like that's a huge barrier. And that's something that comes with perceived bias. And so I think that those are, those are just daily challenges in the workplace. I would say that, you know, a lot of times it's, it's colleagues, not really listening to understand. Um, and so the more, like, I think the deep listening, it almost, it almost is more important, I would say, to want to understand than even truly understanding. Like, it's just like that desire to really understand and get to know our community and stay curious because we have, just on a humanity level, we have a lot in common with our colleagues. And I think if we get past just the cultural and, and those pieces, or we, we don't fixate on that, we have families. We have the same demands in the workplace as anyone else. Uh, we have challenges. And so I think really trying to find those, those connections and those things that we have in common with one another is really a great place to start and also having a sensitivity and apologizing when somebody even confronts something. I think just straight out the gate is something that can go a really long way and not putting it on the other person. I'm sorry you felt that way. You know, I'm sorry what I said impacted you. Or I think that there's a lot of ways that we can be sensitive because at the end of the day, we're walking into a space where there's very few of us and just the mass, uh, which is predominantly white and in the spaces that we send women into and they go into because of their chosen field, understanding that they're kind of the minority in that space. And so uplifting their voices and going that extra step to make them feel a sense of belonging and inclusion is only going to make for a more productive workplace, as well as understanding the assets that they bring, whether that be multilingualism, whether that be an understanding of the different market segments across the world, that lived experience. I think if we really truly utilize each other's gifts, no matter what they are in lived experience, we'd all be better performing and we'd all um, have more, I feel like, effective and, and just generally comfortable workplaces. Those are my thoughts on that question. I'm sure you both have experienced a lot of forms of exclusion 
as you navigate workplaces and some of the work that you do is to work against that, right? Can you think of an example of something that has happened to you and and then either what you would have wanted an a- allies to do differently or, or to show up for you in that moment or even better um, what somebody should have done or could have done differently? From my personal experience, um, I wish that I only had uh, microaggressions, but uh, I can get even the micro out of the of the equation. You know, Melinda and Gabriela, I've been harassed at work. I've been through different things uh, going on in my work life. And one of the things that always come to my mind when I confront these situations is uh, why we do not educate more. We need to educate you know, from the moment that uh, we start working in a company and seeing their culture, we need to educate our third-party providers. And a good example of this, for instance, is uh, even the companies that are managing the health insurance for our company. For instance, I had a funny story. I was actually contacting a long time ago this uh, third-party provider from my insurance and from my company, and I had to you know, for certain issue, I had to uh, talk to uh, my company insurance plus uh, another division of my company plus uh, the third party provider. And uh, when I told them um, that my daughter has uh, two mummies and I belong to the LGBTQ plus community, um, I think that they understood more that I was ordering a sandwich, lettuce, tomato, bacon, Etc. than actually, you know, belonging to this type of community and who I was. So I think that all of us, we need to be accountable as well for educating, educating who is in our workforce, why they have different needs. The same way that when you see someone on a wheelchair, you know that uh, maybe they may need certain help or you offer it. It goes with your instinct. Why we are not doing this at work the same way? That's my question. Why we are not able to see that, uh, for instance, uh, executive management, uh, they should be aware by now that uh, Latin women are the ones that are holding basically the whole family. They are not only daughters, they are mothers, uh, they are sisters. Uh, It's a different way of perceiving family structure. And that means that they are providers on every single level. So flexibility at the workplace will make them excel for instance, and programs for them curated that allow them to do so is a good way to start. So let's educate all of us. And at the same time, our community needs to learn from other communities and we need to make it accessible. But also we need to figure out a better way to explain all the different functionality and the resources that uh, different communities can get through the workforce and the workplace. Can you say a bit more about what you mean on that last point, Micah? For instance, what I've seen and from my own experience in big corporations, it's almost impossible sometimes. I mean, if you don't have to go at least five, at least different layers to get to the person that can actually provide certain resources, we need to figure out a better way to providing those. We need to to figure out a better way to including um, the future generations into the workspace in a completely different way to change the ways that we've been doing it. For instance, if I could get a dollar for all these different managers that were trying to hire um, a women engineers, okay? Oh, I cannot find them. I always give them the same example. 
uh, okay, you cannot find salad tomatoes. Why don't we start uh, getting the seeds and start planting them? It's the same concept. Why don't we go to future generations and we start actually helping them out and creating firms as well for the community where your company is? So we start growing the future talent and in, and being more inclusive for the community. It's just a thought. I love that, Micah. Um, really thinking about pipeline is something that we're, we're truly very invested in and really creating the resources and the networks and the connections from high school all the way through to retirement. And what are all those handoffs? And our organization plays a role in that pipeline, but it's not the end all be all. You know, if someone wants to be a corporate board of director, I send them over to Latino Corporate Board of Directors Association because that's what they focus on and that's what they're really good at. And so, yeah, I think pipeline is super important. Now back to experiences, I think one of the things that has been challenging for me is um, I've been on quite a bit of different leadership panels or decision-making boards. And there has been instances where a white male, an older white male, especially will take plenty of time to talk about all kinds of things, take about all the room in the, take all the air out of the room. And then come time for me to ask a question completely cuts me off. And we'll say something to the likes of, oh, that's Commissioner Chavez Lopez. That's on uh, page 43. And I'm like, no one was talking to you. I was addressing the staff. I was not even addressing my fellow commissioner. And so, you know, there was just instances where it would be just like come jumping in. And I'm like, I've, I have not talked at all during this meeting. This is like my one question. And you can't even just let me get the question in, right? And in that instance, I was sort of waiting. Uh, I was, I didn't really know how to react, honestly, because I, I could get kind of aggressive. And I was like, well, do I want to do that? And I'm this young, I'm, I mean, half his age. I'm a young woman of color. I'm articulate. I'm eloquent. I have probably more accolades than he does. But you know, in that instance, I, I had a few choices. And thankfully, the staff member was that was the most senior who was a black woman said, you know, Ms. Chavez Lopez, thank you so much for that question. We totally ignored his interjection. But thank you so much for that question. I'm really glad you asked that because I don't think we dug in deep enough into our summary to really get at what you're talking about. So she even took responsibility, right? That like, she kind of came in and was a huge ally to me in that situation, being the youngest person, being the one of two women, and really kind of stepping up for me in that moment to not make me look or feel bad. Or, uh, and this again was a public forum as well, so the whole community is there, um, and this is happening in the public eye, which is even more incredibly challenging to deal with uh, because it's not a private room. It's like people are witnessing this interaction and I've been now disrespected in my own community that I care so much deeply about. And there's been a lot of that and that's very hurtful. And what's almost even more honestly hurtful than even that is when someone invites you to the table to check a box and they give you no power. It's a perception of shared power and governance when really you don't actually have any say, or decision-making, or true buy-in, or investment, right? And so I think that also is something that's very performative. And I think companies need to think more deeply about when they invite folks to the table, what are the systems and structures and procedures that they have in place to truly share that governance, to truly share that decision-making power? And power is not easily given up 
which we understand. But if the goal is true, you know, deep DEI and you want those perspectives, they should be valued and they should be acted upon when they are expressed. And so there's kind of two different scenarios there that I that I mentioned, but but I really think that we can all be allies to one another. And I'm not perfect either. There's been instances where I felt like I could have interjected, but I didn't, I wasn't equipped at the time with the right words and the right things. But I almost think like something is better than absolutely nothing. And even if it's just approaching the person after the meeting and acknowledging what happened or asking them how they felt, that can go a really, really long way. I went to one of my board members and I said, hey, she's really good at this, uh, being a great ally. She's trained in it. And she was like, Gabby, it's like, it's like a muscle that you have to flex. It's something in order to get better, better at it. You just have to keep stepping in and keep keep stepping up and you'll get stronger and you'll get better. But there's no really book I could tell you to read or, you know, it's something that you just have to practice. And I think that's what managers and directors and folks within companies can really start to practice is how am I showing up as an ally time and time again, so I can be the strongest and best ally for my team and my company. But it's when I thought about it in that way, I was like, okay, I'm going to start flexing. I'm going to start working this out because I want to get stronger at this. Yeah, I, I want to take your second example, because I think that often as allies, we kind of take one step, bring people to the table, and then we don't really think about what is that next step. The next step is opening space for somebody to speak and eventually somebody to lead at that table, right? And really supporting people in that. That is a really important piece of allyship is that advocacy, that initial advocacy. And then what are you doing next to really make sure that that person has a voice, has a leadership position there in that moment? Um, and that is, you're right, it is, it is a muscle and we start somewhere and then we continue to build that muscle and it grows and it grows and it grows and we become very muscular as allies eventually. I know in the past, Micah, you've talked about the importance also, of, you know, we, we have these e- workplace ecosystems and there are many people in that, within that ecosystem and you, and you mentioned vendors. And I think that is a really important piece of this is that is to make sure that we are broadening um, and really, really seeing that, that bigger scope of our ecosystem and education uh, within that ecosystem. So do you want to talk a little bit more about vendors in particular and what some things are that people can do to really drive inclusion from that perspective? Of course. Um, The first thing is that when you're selecting your vendors, that means that you're looking at the different perspectives in your community and options. Think about the metrics. I talk sometimes to, you know, DEI uh, managers and executives, and they always come with their metrics or worry about their metrics. Um, Let's forget for a second about metrics. Let's start uh, uh, doing it um, very organic. When I think about the vendors and providers, um, the, the, think, think it from this perspective. And what is the sign that you want to send to your community and also to your workforce? By saying this, what I'm trying to say is that if you pick the right vendors and providers, you're telling your community, clients, future clients, uh, partners, etc., that you care. And that you care not only for the diversity of that community, but also your workforce. I always say, if uh, you want uh, good leaders in your company that are going to be bringing the spirit, the brand of what you're trying to create, the best brand is actually showing that you care for your workforce. Because the workforce that you harvest is part of the community that uh, you should be 
definitely um, get in, in contact with. I'm sure that many companies, they have all this training about, you know, different issues, harassment, et cetera, et cetera. Let's face it, all that training and all those videos are not current. It's better if you bring community leaders that actually express and they live by these issues every day that they're able to tell you, okay, this is the help that we need. This is how you can make a difference. I always consider, and my grandmother always said that the best way to resolve issues is around a good meal. In our culture, it works quite well. And great wine as well. You know, let's face it. You know, if we do it, we do it right. So it's a good way of uh, gathering everyone together. It's a good way of talking to people and trying to figure out what they're doing in that community. And um, let me share a secret with all of you. Maybe not such a secret anymore, but anyway. One of the reasons why I decided to start Heroica was because I really wanted companies and institutions to share resources with these women that are becoming the innovators in their communities. Companies and institutions have the resources and they also have the chance to motivate their employees to help the community. A community that grows brings also wealth to the companies that are in that community. And that's the first step to start creating programs, initiatives, and looking for providers for a company. I don't know if you want me to extend myself a little bit more or not. Or Gabriela wants to bring another point. Around vendors, I mean, I I just second all that that Micah shared. And a lot of our folks that are in our network are actual vendors to some of Silicon Valley's largest companies. And they, Latinas, like that's something to know about our culture is that we actually pay it forward quite a bit. Any dollar that's given to us, we actually reinvest about 80 cents of it back into the community. And so these vendors and these businesses aren't just sitting there getting rich, like letting their bank accounts just sit there and and grow over time. They're then turning around and investing it back into their families and their communities, into their churches, into these community-based organizations. That's just culturally something that is very, the culture of philanthropy is something Something that is very much just ingrained in us. So as you're investing in these companies and giving them these opportunities to scale and grow and compete for these contracts, you really see it on the ground, what those impacts and those ripple effects are. And so I definitely second it. I've seen it time and time again. And all of these accelerators, all of these business, I love to see it. One of my good friends, Maria Castellon, who runs BenchTech, which is providing benches and infrastructure for the biggest tech companies here in Silicon Valley and globally, was in Apple's first like BIPOC incubator that they launched for their vendors that was specifically targeted for underrepresented vendors for their company. And they made a big splash about it through the media. And what did that say to me? I mean, I've questioned Apple's commitment because they're not very showy about their giving. But in that moment, I was like, wow, I'm so glad that I have bought 18 iPhones at some point in my life. My son has an iPad. My mom has a, you know, it's almost like I felt this new appreciation and value from that company that I never had experienced before. And it sends a message 
And I think that's where companies can really be innovative and really be different is to really send a message out to the world that, hey, we're inclusive, we're forward thinking, we're futuristic, we are not stuck in the status quo. Like we want to push, we want to push this forward and we want to center equity in our business practices. And because it's good for business, as as you say, Melinda, it is good for business and they know the you look at any chart, you look at any data point, and I won't go into it, but workforce, even just the consumerism of our community, the growth of our community, it's just so goes Latino, so goes the future of the United States, and so goes the competitiveness that we have on a global scale. And I think that companies need to start seeing our community as assets and resources to competing globally and into the future. And so I definitely see how something like a vendor can seem so small or some program can seem, but it can have huge impacts for future generations. And even just as a marketing sort of idea or message that you push out into the world that, hey, we're really looking about this and we're taking this seriously. Yeah, absolutely. You might be thinking if you're listening or watching that you don't have influence over vendors, but you do. You can push for change on your teams. Who are your teams bringing in as vendors? Who is your organization bringing in as vendors? You can push for supplier diversity programs within your organization. And you can also purchase from from Latinx vendors as well, right? In your own life. It's all interrelated, right? Because the more we support Latinx entrepreneurs, Latina entrepreneurs, the more they can continue to grow in our society because we know they don't and we've had discussions about this before is we know that Latina entrepreneurs do not receive much in the way of investment so they rely on us to procure their services and their products to be successful. Let me push it back to you Mike and Gabriela what haven't we talked about but that you think is really important to discuss in this moment in time? There's one thing that I would love to add, not only to the vendors and third-party providers, I would also like to launch this thought out there. And maybe I'm going to get burned after I say this, but um, I'm old enough. I like the fire. I think that companies should definitely start thinking in a completely different way. And also our ecosystem around the companies that we're building and the Latino and the Latinx and Latina community. And a good example of this is that our community and any community deserves better than philanthropy at this point. I know that philanthropy has helped many communities here in the United States. But I think that we need to start finding a balance. We saw during decades philanthropy to help certain issues. Later, the marvelous word of uh, social impact came into this scenario. And now we're looking into social innovation. As I said earlier, when we decided to start um, um, Heroica, we were looking into the social innovation because we know that the women that are in these communities are the ones that are seeing everyday issues and they're trying to find the best solutions. We need to, to figure out how these three pillars that I'm going to mention right now, you can bring them into your company's culture. And one of them, and this is our Bible at Heroica, one is, for instance, women in underrepresented communities. Two, it would be um, digital inclusivity, because if we're not seen, how are you going to know who you have to help? 
who you can collaborate, who you can hire, or who you can bring as a contractor or a vendor. And the third one, of course, is economic and educational development. A good example of all of this is maybe to bring uh, Latinx and Latinas as entrepreneurs in residence and create a perfect program that is curated for our community. We can bring a type of innovation because of the issues that we see daily that uh, maybe your R&D uh, teams are not able to see at this point. Uh, another thing is that uh, company policies and also city policies, we need to push. And um, I'm going to explain this internally and externally. We need to look for also the entrepreneurs that are working in your company and also how they are dealing with the institutions also abroad that company. And why this is important, because we need to make accountable as well the institutions that are in our cities for our businesses. They need to help us create the right ecosystem for our communities, creating the right programs. For instance, if a city comes up with um, free daycare, for women in that city, can you imagine? Can you imagine what women in that community and men in that community will be able to do? It's just a tiny thought. Or just bringing it, if you're able to see that that city has certain programs, how your company can compensate in a certain way or try to bring whatever programs are not uh, out there by the institutions, but you can bring it in your company and make the difference. Things as simple as this can mean the world for a community. Intrapreneurs. I always learn new terms from you, Micah. Thank you for that. I appreciate that so much um, because I think that there are a lot of folks within corporations, within businesses that have this entrepreneurial spirit about them that are solving problems within their organization. And so I love that acknowledgement. Thank you for, for sharing that term. I think two things, one internal to the organization's I would love to see deeper investment and larger investments in BRGs, ERGs, and not asking your workforce to do that work for free. Hiring a chief diversity officer is great, and it's one component of it, but you really have to have the voices of the people and the staff at every level that have this shared lived experience. These affinity groups are so critical to a company's success, and it almost feels like an afterthought in the budget. They tell me that talk to ERG leaders, and they're basically expected to have like an additional job on top of their full-time job to do these things for free, to put on like 10 events a year, and they have no budget. And it's like, you're your company is richer than God. Like, are you kidding me? Like, not legitimately, but they have so much money. Like, how are you not investing in this workforce? Because when you think about recruitment, usually people get recruited by their networks, right? And people that they know. If you only have this small little population of people, their network, you're just going to have this small Latino network. But if you start hiring more Latinos, if you start hiring more Black women, then you're bringing along their entire networks. And we're very well networked. And so you let one of us in, uh, we're we're going to find you the Latina engineers, the doctors, the nurses that you need, because that's our network. That's our community. We know the inroads there. So that would be my first point around
around really recruitment, retention, and real investments in these BRGs, ERGs, and these employee resource groups. So some real serious thought around that and paying people for their work. I mean, we're already underpaid. Women, Latinas in Silicon Valley are paid 33.5 cents on the dollar to their white male counterparts. Because of the pandemic, Latina Equal Pay Day got moved out another month, which is we've lost so much income and we have so much ground to gain. And so I think there needs to be some real intentionality from these companies, just like Salesforce, they're at pay equity for all of their employees. Why is that such a novel idea? Like, Thank you. It just seems so realistic. It's like, okay, everyone have qualifications, similar jobs, functions, education levels, um, equal playing field. So that being said, and I also want to dovetail on what Micah was saying, the cross-sector collaboration and respect that needs to be had between government, nonprofit, and the private sector, we cannot solve these large societal problems alone. And we need each other for each other's gifts and talents and resources to come to the table, to come together, to share thoughts and not have the private sector looking down on the nonprofit. No accountability, no this, no that, no no metrics. It's like, that's not our job. We're not, we, our shareholders are the society. <laughs> like we're measuring impact in a way different way than you would a product. And so I would just love to see the respect and even saying government's not innovative. That's not true. Government has so many innovative things that are happening and resources pumping through because of what happened with the pandemic. So I think there needs to be this mutual respect of like everyone has their place. Everyone's bringing their, you know, strengths to the table, but we need to come around the same table to talk about a lot of these societal issues. And for us, when we launched our workforce program, we had Salesforce at the table. We had the city, we had the county, we had nonprofit step up, nonprofit partners, because we realized no one's going to do this work alone. No one's going to change, not charity. So I also think on Micah's point, we really think about change, not charity. This is not charity. You want to change something. There's a problem here. And this acknowledgement that there's a problem is something where it's like, okay, well, what are we going to do to change it? And what investments is it going to take in order for us to do that? So those are kind of my closing thoughts around um, some things that companies and workplaces can think about uplifting their employees and then working outside their own echo chamber of the building that they're in, thinking about the community, thinking about engaging with nonprofits more just holistically. We're all together in this and we're all a collective humanity. So I think if we just focus more on what we share in common and what we want to accomplish, uh, we may have different ideas of how to get there, but I think coming together and having those conversations, uh, we can really come up with some incredible solutions. Absolutely. And and I want to remind folks again, if you're thinking, well, I can't influence that in, in your workplace, you can. Um, amp- think about amplifying. Think about understanding where Latinx where your Latinx colleagues really want to take things in the workplace, what they need, and then amplifying their voices. No matter what your role is, you can make a difference. Yeah. And I mentioned, Melinda, something about that, that that reminded me of something I wanted to say about the influence piece. Sometimes being an influencer outside of the building and building that social capital in the community helps you inside starts getting the attention of the directors of that's something that I did really early on in my career. I started making political connections. I started making connections with nonprofit leaders. I started getting on boards and commissions. And then inside of the building, my you know, managers and art were like, wow, you really have some leadership capabilities. And I didn't have that avenue right away 
in the private sector. But sometimes what you do outside of that building can really show your influence and really start to have people within your company, you can exercise leadership in so many different ways. And I think like just to influence and show influence and power, it doesn't have to be just within your scope of work. And sometimes it can get the attention on the outside, right? You bring in resources from the outside, you know, your company is looking for a keynote speaker, you get the mayor to come and it's like, oh, Gabby secured the mayor. Yeah, I did. So, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just, I think that there's, there's ways in which you can early on in your career, especially kind of start to build your own influence and power even outside of the organization to then have an effect inside. Awesome. Um, I want to jump to questions really quickly. How do we educate white men in the power structure? And the idea here for this question is to start young. Are there ways that you have found to educate white men within this power, about the power structure and, and their role? Besides having a conversation, I like radical solutions, you know, take them camping to Angel Island uh, <laughs> with all the <laughs> with all the Latinos and Latinx in your company, in your community. That's a good way of integrating everyone and getting to learn during that night and that weekend a little bit more about each other. As I say, uh, bring them into a different environment where they don't feel comfortable. I guarantee you that they will start um, creating a bond. Um, yeah, I have a client who they do, they take executives to into their homes for dinners, um, you know, to meet their families and, and create empathy that way. Other, other companies bring executives into ERG discussions. I mean, there are lots of ways that you can get that more immersive kind of building, building empathy. And Angel Island too, for those of you who live in the Bay Area. <laughs> Another question is, what are this panel's thoughts on providing bilingual employees with additional compensation, specifically when it's not your job description, but because it becomes an I expectation? I am such a fan of this. You have no idea. And now that I'm in certain positions of power and influence, when I'm negotiating contracts or when I'm helping, someone says, hey, I want your support on X on something. I'm like, well, you're talking about something where you want to center equity in this, but what is the, okay, so this is example of doctors, a doctor's union. And I said, okay, so you want Latinos to speak out for these doctors, right? Who in many cases, people are like doctors, like, shouldn't they be okay? Aren't they, there's many assumptions, but they still deserve representation, of course. And I said, well, you know, what's written in there around bilingualism? Because you're telling me that these doctors have way more so many more clients that are patients that they have busier schedules that they're more in demand so where is the compensation there for the extra work that they're having to put in and they don't have to have an interpreter right they don't have to have that additional support so I am such a fan of this I think it's whatever language it doesn't just have to be Spanish it can be Vietnamese it could be any language that you need to utilize to do business anywhere I think is super important I also think in the legal field the fact that public defenders don't get paid more more uh, for speaking additional languages, but district attorneys do. And I'm just told that it's because they have a better union. This is just ridiculous. I think we need to get to a place of they're, they're bringing a skill to the table. There's less requirement to have an interpreter and have to hire somebody, then pay them, compensate them for that skill. Um, I don't 
I don't think that's out of the question, but I'm such a fan of it. And in regards to white men, I've also like picked up golf <laughs> as a um, mutual hobby and it's been super fun. And I've also, you know, I think it's, it's just a place where we're relaxed. We're having a good time. We can talk about things. We can connect on a familiarity. It's kind of like a click, like there's like thing about people who golf, just like probably people who do anything right together collectively. And so that's been kind of one of my inroads of just connecting with a white male, for example. Well, I also have been told by them that I also have offered them a seat at the table. I don't totally just say you're a white man. You don't know about Latina issues. You don't know what you're talking about. I, they, and this is feedback that they've given me. They say, what I appreciate about you, Gabby, is the fact that like, I feel that I'm not being ostracized. Like I still have a seat, but you still keep me in line <laughs> around the parameters of said seat and what the expectations are. Um, and so I've really invited white men in to also be listeners, to also contribute a lot of knowledge. And they've had a lot of experiences that I haven't had. So, you know, sharing that as well as a sounding board, because I also get ideas from them, like things that they say, I just kind of will regurgitate back to another way. And it's like, it resonates. And I'm like, oh, I wouldn't have thought of that. But it's like translation, right? Learning a language and being able to translate. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And this shared humanity thing, I think is, and really deep listening is is really important in that, but providing a space. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you both for this conversation and for all the work you do to create change in our ecosystems. And this episode and any past episodes at ally.cc. And again, please go purchase my book if you haven't already uh, to learn how to be a better ally as well. And and I actually do talk about language in there for those of you. I know there were a couple of questions about wanting to know more. MelindaBriannaEpler.com. You can learn more there. Appreciate you all. Make sure that you do take action. Micah, do you want to pose that question? Oh, for sure. What are you going to do after listening to this conversation today? Let me give you a couple of ideas. Uh, You're more than welcome to contact Gabriela and myself. Uh, My email is very simple, Micah at heroica with h and double k dot com and please let us know how we can collaborate and work together and Gabriela they are all yours. Same uh, Gabriela at latinacoalition.org and um Yes, uh, support Latinas uh, in your workplace and in your communities and listen deeply and connect on on levels that maybe you haven't before. So um, I think that's super important and invest in Latinas. It's the greatest investment you'll ever make. Love it. Thank you both. Thank you, everybody. And thank you to our ASL interpreters and Maggie as well. We'll share resources and a transcript from this discussion at ally.cc. And please make sure to subscribe to our channel and rate this show. It makes a difference for us. Thank you for being part of our community. And remember, the more we take action, the more we grow as humans and as leaders, and the more we transform our communities. So what action will you take today? Let us know your actions by emailing podcast at changecatalyst.co or reaching out on social media. And Leading with Empathy and Allyship is a show by Change Catalyst where we build inclusive innovation through training, consulting, and events. You can learn more about us at changecatalyst.co. So let's keep building allyship across our communities and around the world. Thank you for listening.